I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not murder. Well, years ago, I spent a summer working as a camp counselor all summer long, and um, I watched the videographer carry around his camera, his fancy camera, and I was so thankful. It looked so delicate, so fragile. I was so thankful all summer long. I didn't have that guy's job. You know, with all the ways to break a camera at a camp, the water, the games, the crazy activities, and, and all of that. And near the end of the summer, kids have come and gone, and, and I asked the camera guy, how, how much that cost? And he says, $4,000. I'm like, at the time, it felt enormous to me. And it was, you know, kids had come and gone, but I'd asked that question, and later that day, the last round of parents picked up their kids, and the job I had was to watch their kids. And I thought to myself, There's not a parent here who, if they had to choose between a broken $4,000 camera and a broken child, wouldn't consider their child priceless in comparison. And they're not wrong to do so. That's how God feels. But why does God feel that way? And if God feels that way, what does that mean for you and I as we relate to others. That's what I want to talk about this morning. So if you would, let's begin in prayer and we'll open up God's word together. Heavenly Father, there are moments in our life when we are awakened, sometimes jarringly, to the value of life, whether it be the birth of a child or the absence of a birth of a child, a miscarriage, or infertility, or a funeral, or an illness, or whatever it would be, but we were wakened up to the gravity and the worth of human life. I pray that in all the right ways this morning, this sermon would be that as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you're new to our church, I'll mention or really new to any church, um, I'll mention that what we do here each week is we teach through a section of the Bible. And usually as we teach through a section of the Bible, uh, we do that so that we can know God better and enjoy Him and help others walk with Him. And normally we teach from several verses. So two, three, four, or five, a couple dozen verses, maybe as much as two chapters or something like that. I've never had a smaller passage than the one we have this morning. <laughs> If you're holding a Bible, turn with me to the book of Exodus. And so Exodus is the second book of the Bible. If you're in one of these pews here, there's Bibles in the row. And it's on page 57, Exodus chapter 20. We've been teaching through the fall, through the book of Exodus, and then we're spending one week in each of the Ten Commandments. And now, I'll flip there as well, we come to we come to the sixth commandment which is Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and we read this. You shall not murder. It's four words. In Hebrew, though, it's just two. Lo redzak, or something like that. Two words, no murder, no killing. 
Sometimes just a few words actually say a whole lot, and that's the case with this commandment. If you're looking at that Bible in the pew, and I suspect other Bibles, um, there's a footnote on that word murder that takes you down, footnote number three, that takes you down to the bottom of the page, where the translators add this sentence. The Hebrew word, here for murder, also covers causing human death through carelessness or negligence. Okay? Older versions of the Bible, like say the King James Bible, had thou shall not kill. Can you hear the difference? Kill, murder. Kill has this sweeping connotation to it, right? And, and murder has something more narrow, something a very specific time kind of killing. When you press into this a bit, which I think is worth doing just for a moment, I think murder is a better translation. You, you, you have the word kill used in the Old Testament hundreds of times, and that's not the generic word. The generic word is used hundreds of times, but that's not the word that's used specifically here in the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 13. You have something more specific, something that implies premeditation or at least a responsibility. Which is why I think murder is a better translation. One commentator suggested, you shall not commit homicide is an even better way to understand the word. Because then we're looking at, okay, what is an unlawful taking of human life? That word unlawful seeming to signify, okay, there might be a lawful taking of life, say perhaps in a just war or self-defense. And yet all of that can feel rather academic. So I'll return to the question I asked at the start. It's clear, I think, that God values life, but why? Why does God value life? And if he values life, how does that influence the way you and I treat one another? Well, let me answer the first question first with an illustration. Why does God value life? And I, I don't want to be crass, Merely for the sake of being crass. But let's just say you invite me to your house for dinner. And I use the restroom. And I say to you afterwards, I, I didn't use toilet paper. I, use, I found a picture of your family. Okay, you're laughing. I, like, I didn't int- I intend the punch, that to be a punchline. But you're laughing. Um, how do you feel about that? Like, is that okay if that, that really happens? Like, that's not okay. And you don't care whether you have the digital copy and I can print a thousand more. There's something special about that picture and the image on it that requires us to treat it with a certain dignity and reverence. It's just paper created from the mush of trees that's been flattened and colored in a certain pattern. And yet, because of the image, you're never going to have me over to your house again. As Caleb said on the video, when we read the Bible, we see that God bestowed upon humans something special, namely his very own image. If you think back to the second commandment, we don't have images of God because we have seven, eight billion of them in a sense. Not that we're gods, but God has put his image on us in a unique way. And rather than just saying this, in fact, theologians call it the imago Dei, if you've ever heard that phrase, it's Latin, the image of God. Rather than just telling you this, I want you to see it in the pages of Scripture for yourself. So 
Flip over to the first book of the Bible, in fact, probably the first page or so of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 at first, and then I'm going to read Genesis chapter 9 in a moment. As you're flipping there, I'll say that after making all that was made, stars and planets and ocean and land and mountains and waterfalls and towering trees, colorful coral, beautiful animals, ferocious animals, after all these things, God made humans which in some ways were just the same bunch of atoms and carbons arranged in different ways, and yet we're not merely those things. God says you are special. Even though you may have similar chemical compositions to all the other parts of nature, God has put his image upon you. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In other words, humans, men and women are at the top of the food chain, so to speak. And yet, if we had more time, we'd explore, okay, to be at the top of the food chain means to steward creation the way God does, which is to make it better, not worse, but that's taking us off field. But then we come to verse 27. So God created Man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay. So people are God's pictures. People were made in the image and likeness of God. But we were made that way. Are we still? Right? That's, are we still? I mean... Genesis 1 is before Adam messed everything up. Surely now the image and likeness is lost. I mean, if you have a factory and you're making these widgets and they're coming off the assembly line good and with the design and intention of the maker, but then all of a sudden the ingredients get messed up, now the widget's coming off the assembly line surely can't be said to represent the intention of the maker. Can they? Well, I don't know in that scenario. But that's not how the Bible speaks about us. Just a few pages later in chapter 9 of Genesis, we read God speak to this very issue of not simply were made, but are made. Still. In chapter 9, after Noah and his family get off the ark, God says to Noah and to all subsequent generations, to you and I, quote, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Should sound familiar. It's the language that was used in Genesis of Adam and Eve before they had sinned, as if he's saying, God's saying to humans, okay, that thing I was doing, we're still doing it. My commands are still in effect. Then if you let your eyes go down to verse 9, we read this. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For, this is what I would draw your attention to, God made man in his own image. Notice that phrase, God made man in his own image. The idea is that God is still, despite our sin, making people in his own image and likeness. This is why when a parent says, I could care less about a broken camera compared to a broken child, they're not wrong. And rather than experiencing this truth as a weight and a hindrance and a killjoy, the sixth commandment from God, you shall not murder, would have been first received as a tremendous blessing. The Israelites would have received God's view of life as a tremendous blessing, which is how you should receive it. Think about their context. Exodus chapter 20. 
Again, page 57, we're reminded of the context in the preface to the Ten Commandments, those words right before the commandments themselves. God speaks in verses 1 and 2, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of what? Slavery. Because of the cultural context the Israelites had, they may have been tempted to treat life as cheap. You may be tempted to treat life as cheap because of the cultural context you inhabit. In Pharaoh's house, just over a month before this day that they're receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites were in a culture where life was cheap. If you had the power, you could kill as you saw fit. And Pharaoh had the power, and he could kill as, and did kill as he saw fit, which caused, as we read in chapter 2, the groans of God's people to go up. And when we preach that in the fall, and as we said several times later, when the groans of God's people go up, God comes down. And when we said that, groans of God's people go up and God comes down. We had in mind God's special way of coming down among his people with a strong and mighty hand through signs and wonders, 10 plagues, parting the Red Sea, closing the Red Sea, and rescuing his people from Egypt. But God also came down and is down in the giving of his law, his wise, gracious Kind law to his people. You shall not murder, God commands. No matter how powerful you get or how reprehensible someone might become, you as an individual do not have the right to unlawfully take life because, God says, I have put my image on every human and I am still putting my image on every human. Therefore, Every person has dignity and value and worth. So what does this mean? What does this mean for you? I want to use the rest of our time to explore this second question I asked. We know, okay, okay, this is why he feels that way. Now, now what does that mean for us? And I want to approach it from two brief answers. They might not feel that brief. But they're brief as far as things can go. I want to talk about the way we relate to others in light of God's value for life, both externally as we relate to others and then at the level of the heart. I'll start with external ways we must value life. It could be the case that when you hear, you shall not murder, you think that there couldn't be a commandment less relevant to our lives, to your lives, because murder is something that might tragically happen, but it happens out there. The people we don't really know. I'm not sure that's true, though. People used to speak of, and maybe some still do, the, the, the game uh, that became popular in the 90s. It, they, it was, I don't know how official it was a game, but it was just this thing that was talked about of six degrees of separation from like Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon's a Hollywood actor, and like he'd been so many movies for so long that whatever movie he was in, like you could take any Hollywood actor who's ever been in one movie, and whether through the cast or another director or some some connection through Hollywood, in six steps or less, you could get, get back to Kevin Bacon. That was the game. 
And when we think of murder and homicide as something out there uh, that might have happened to someone, but sometimes we think about it as, okay, it's three, four, maybe six, maybe 10 degrees away from us, but it's not. As a pastor of this church, I'll tell you it's not. Growing up, murder came to my extended family in a very jarring, as though there were another kind, way. And, and I would love to tell you a story, except I'm not, because I don't love to tell the story, and I don't want it to come across as cheap or some sort of preacher gimmick to just feel the weight of it, but I could tell you it, and you would. And when you consider suicide, it's certainly not six degrees away from most of us. Most of us, it's not even two. This came to my family in a turbulent way as well, which I don't want to go into, lest it feel cheap. I was talking with someone last week after the service who mentioned the sparse nature of this command. and Just four words, two in the Hebrew. And he was sympathizing with me how to get 30 minutes out of it. And he was just teasing. But I hope you can see that this command has implications for so many issues. We could talk about murder, of course. But we could talk also about war and pacifism and perhaps with Messiah College and the tradition that that school comes out of within Christianity and pacifism, maybe that would be worthwhile. We won't, but it wouldn't have been a mistake to do so. We could talk about genocide and other national atrocities and why people might rightly be raising serious questions about China now as the Winter Olympics are happening and the treatment of the Uyghur people, which many of you might not know anything about, but the deplorable treatment they're experiencing. We actually, there's a, form, there's a member of our church who was a foreign missionary who was thrown out of China in the wake of the uprising of the Uyghur people and the slam down that followed by China. So this is very real. We could talk about capital punishment. We could talk about abortion and euthanasia. That is the killing of the weakest, of the weak at their weakest. We could talk about how movies, media, and video games desensitize us to violence. We could talk about suicide. We could talk about end-of-life issues for the terminally and acutely ill. And I haven't even touched on birth control and abortifacients. It's it's a big word, but it essentially refers to chemicals that are more things that cause abortions rather than birth control itself. I could talk about how we as a church should shovel our sidewalks and the way we should put down salt to prevent people from slipping on ice, all of which would be implications rightly drawn from just two simple Hebrew words, lo, redzak. I could fill 30 minutes. The the challenge is what to fill them with. Which 30, which words to fill the 30 minutes with? That's the hard part. And because I only feel like I get... The passage like, you shall not murder, every so often. In 10 years, this is the first time of preaching regularly. I want to ask just permission here. In the middle of the sermon, it's a little clunky. But I want to just grab three of those issues and just give one paragraph to each. It's selective, I know, but I'm trying to touch on three issues that feel at least relevant to us. With respect to abortion... Number one, Christians believe it's wrong. Christians believe cells in a womb are not just cells. Those cells have a heartbeat at just three or four weeks, and they have the image of God upon them far before they have heartbeats. We have a new member who's joining our church, 
soon. And part of her job is counseling women in a pregnancy situation and they're wrestling with what to do. Just nudging towards life. I just remember sitting in that interview going, wow, that's heavy. It's wonderful though. I think of others here at our church. Well, we'll just say there's baby bottles, or at least there were after first service, on that second table over there, right past the women's retreat, that are just don't, collecting donations for Crisis Pregnancy Center, Morningstar. So try and be involved to put, put kind of to take our words and put our actions to them. And I think of others in our church who are involved in foster care and adoption, sometimes in very hard situations, yet persevering because, because life matters. We're trying. Praise God for that. When it comes to suicide, it almost feels like malpractice to just say a little bit. And yet to say nothing also feels the same way. So I guess what I would just say is that suicide is neither an unforgivable sin, nor is it a good thing, obviously. I hope. Suicide is not an unforgivable sin. There will be Christians in heaven who took their own life. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches suicide is unforgivable. I've stood in the front of a room officiating a funeral service for someone who victim of suicide. And I said those exact things largely because the context was a Catholic background for those in the room who were religious and most of them weren't. I don't even know if that's official Catholic dogma or it's just folklore, but that's a thing, but it's not in the Bible. Suicide is a forgivable sin. But that doesn't mean it's a good thing. Even when it feels like the only option. It's neither the only option nor a good choice. Perhaps because of the pandemic, perhaps for other reasons, we've all heard suicide rates are up, particularly young, among teenage girls. But I don't care all that much about rates, but I care about you. Lots of people probably care about you. And and if this is something rumbling around in your head, in your heart, we want to know. We want to help. I've seen our church in extraordinary ways mobilize itself to help those that are struggling. We would love to know. We would treat you with a dignity and a respect and an honor and a confidentiality and a weight. This commandment also speaks to terminal illness, abortion, suicide, terminal illness, number three. Because God values life, it's really, 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 really good to fight. Life matters. But we also know that God walks with us through the valley of the shadow of the death holding our hand all the way to glory. Both of those are true. It's good to fight and it's good to know God's holding my hand. 
I'll put it like this. Imagine someone hanging for their life from monkey bars. The fight to hang on as long as possible preaches something true. Life matters. And the letting go when it's time also preaches something true. God's there to catch me. He's going to carry me home. These are complicated issues and there's so much more to say, but everything I have said, I've said to you as a Christian pastor. I know that most of you here aren't Christian pastors. Some of you aren't Christians. You're just here and you're new and you're trying to understand Jesus perhaps for the first time. So what I've tried to do is show you my work, so to speak. Like remember math in high school? Some of you are still there. Lose points for not showing your work. I've tried to show my work, like not only why we get there, but how we get there. Because so many times in these conversations with people, both on the Outside the church and inside the church, we leap to the conclusions. This is how you must feel about abortion. This is how you should feel about capital punishment or just war or something else. Fill in the blank. And so often we don't show our work. So if you're new here to our church and you don't feel the same way I do about abortion and you're wrestling with all of these issues, I want you to know the first conversation I want to have you is is not about any of those things, but who is Jesus? And why does he matter? And why is he good for us? Why do we need him? And how does he love us? That's the first question. We'll worry about this other stuff in a bit. Speaking of Jesus, let's look at the words he spoke about murder. See that transition? Um, When Jesus speaks of murder, he, he, he internalizes it in a way that's astounding. So, If you have a Bible, flip with me over to page 760. At least that's 760 in these pew Bibles. This is Matthew chapter 5. It comes from Jesus' most famous sermon. It's 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 the longest extended kind of continuation of of one sermon. I don't know whether it occurred as it's all written here or whether it was over a long afternoon and it's been condensed down to the the core of what he was saying, but it's certainly been condensed accurately and, and, and all of that. But he's touching on a number of issues. And he speaks of anger. We'll probably end up in this passage next week as well. But in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, we read this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, hear the authority in his voice. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. That language there, you fool, sometimes the translations just leave it as a transliteration of the word that's used in the original. Um, Raka, which is the sort of word I heard one person say this last week, or they had written. It's the sort of word we would bleep out. Read it again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says a word that should be bleeped out when you speak of someone else 
Anybody who's ever done that, you will be liable to the hell of fire. You see what's happening there? Jesus is fighting against murder, I'll say, upstream. If you have a pollution problem downstream, you can build a treatment facility. Or you can go upstream and address the contamination problem upstream, where the pollution gets into the water. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus wants you in your heart to not hate people. So I'll ask right now, very pointedly, who do you despise such that if they were not in your life, you'd be happy? You may not want to murder them, or maybe you do or have, but at a minimum, you just want them out of your life. What are these words of Jesus saying to you? They're saying something to you before they say something to someone else. But it gets even harder. It's not just that we're not to hate. When you look at other words from Jesus about this commandment, I don't have time to go there, but like Matthew 22, where he speaks of the first and second greatest commandment. And you look at the words from other New Testament writers, like Galatians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 13, which I will look at in a minute, these commandments get even more intense. Not only are we to not hate our neighbor and our brothers and sisters, but we are to love them instead. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul, Romans 13, verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if love for neighbor is what God requires of you in a fallen world, then we must also be requiring us to forgive. We talk about forgiveness a lot. Even from God, yes, but but from one to another. But I don't know that we often explain what it means. So let's explain what it means here. When to forgive someone in a Christian context is not to say what they did didn't matter. Oh, it's okay. It's actually to say it wasn't okay and to acknowledge that. To forgive someone in a Christian context is to release the punishment that is owed to them over to God, that God will deal with their sin either on the cross or in hell, but I will not crucify the person in my heart for what they did to me. That's Christian forgiveness, which means that forgiveness only takes one person. It only takes you forgiving someone else regardless of what they do or how they respond or whether they've asked for it. But to be reconciled in a relationship, okay, that takes two people forgiving and repenting, okay? So sometimes when we talk about forgiveness, we think we mean everything, and we don't. Forgiveness is on you, reconciliation is on two people, and trust is something altogether down the road. Forgiveness could lead to reconciliation, which could lead to trust, but that takes two people reconciling over a period of time. I think sometimes the reason I'm saying all this is because I think when we talk about forgiveness, sometimes we're unhelped by thinking we mean all of that at once. David, Pastor David, as I was talking about him this week, he said one of his favorite authors speaks of it this way, forgiveness is like absorbing a debt that wasn't paid, but it doesn't mean necessarily loaning out more money. Or becoming business partners. 
Which is to say, God calls you to forgive people in your life who have hurt us. But that doesn't mean those people have to be in your life anymore. In the cases of abuse, they might. Um, perhaps we say they, maybe they shouldn't be. But if all this is true, all that everything I've said so far is true, there's really only one way we can end the sermon. God's forgiveness of us. That's really it. If, as Jesus says, we are in danger of the fires of hell because of unjust anger in our hearts and our failures to not love our neighbors, then all of this means that we deserve judgment. And if all of us deserve judgment, then we really only have one place to turn. God's forgiveness offered in Christ because of his living and dying and rising and offering you forgiveness. Think with me for a moment as we close about the Apostle Peter. After Jesus lived and died and rose and ascended to the throne of the universe, right there at the beginning of the book of Acts, Peter preaches a famous sermon. He preached several famous sermons, but one of his most famous is right there in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning. And Peter is speaking to an audience that was responsible for the very murder of Jesus Christ. Think of that speaker-audience dynamic. And Peter, rather than ignoring that very real thing, he looks them right in the eye and he says this, quote, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You killed him. You may have used others, but you did it. And you might think, well, that's the end of the sermon. You made your punchline, go sit down. And if it was a sermon preached by some of the pundits in our culture, that's the way Peter's sermon would have gone. You failed, you failed, you failed. Now go home, sit in your shame, and shut up. That is the sermon preached in culture. And yet Christian preaching is something altogether different. Peter follows his comments about their murder with the promise of forgiveness of all who turn to God. They're stirred in their hearts when they hear this. They say, yeah, we were. What are we going to do? Is God going to forgive us? How, how could we ever get right with him? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized. And listen to the, the lavishness, the expansiveness of this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for all your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Can you hear the heart of God in this? And in doing this, Peter's not being more gracious than God, more gracious than Jesus. Peter can extend the promise of God's forgiveness to those who killed his friend because this is what Jesus does for others. It's what Jesus did for Peter. While Jesus was being murdered, he hangs from the cross and says what? Father, forgive them. If Peter can extend forgiveness to the very people who murdered Jesus, and Jesus can extend forgiveness to the very people who are murdering him, then I can offer you this same forgiveness. No matter what you've done, are doing, or will do, God wants to forgive you but you need to ask. And not only does he want to forgive you, he wants you to take that same forgiveness and pour it lavishly 
into the lives of others. Next week, we'll take up the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment has to do with something that should only be shared between a husband and a wife. And I'll be preaching, and I don't anticipate I'll be unnecessarily provocative or jarring in anything that I'll say, but I did want to mention it for those of you who are parents as you make choices about children in Sunday school. Would you join me in prayer as I invite the worship team to come back up? Heavenly Father, I pray right now for two particular things. One would be those who feel they have done something that could never be forgiven. Lord, I pray that you would speak, even shout, perhaps even sing your forgiveness over them. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And Lord, I pray for those on the other side who are wrestling with the unforgiveness in their heart and they don't even know how they could displace it. I pray that you would so pour your heart, love into their hearts that it would displace all the rage, all the fury, and all the hate. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.